before I read the scripture, let's say a short prayer together. Lord Jesus, open our ears, hearts, and minds to your word this morning. Let it bring light to our minds, joy to our hearts, and remembrance to our ears. Thank you for your word. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians 11. I'll be reading from verses, verses 17 to 26 and then verse 33. 17 to 26 and then verse 33. <clears throat> but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then jumping to verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. We're looking at um, the book of First Corinthians, which is um, a not-so-great letter in the circumstances that were happening. And I don't know how good your imagination is with Paul's description. I don't think it gets much better from Greek to English than when he goes, what? It's quite clear that he did not think one group of Corinthian Christians eating and drinking to excess while another group was struggling to get by financially and <laughs> was good. I think this little phrase at the end of the chapter actually summarizes the chapter well if we remember the purposes of corporate worship when you come together, wait for one another. And that begins with our worship not being contentious. If you're looking at your Bible, and you notice we started in verse 17, but you know this is a series on 1 Corinthians, and you have um, a phrase above it, it says head coverings. And this is a very interesting part of the scriptures, one that I actually think we understand well. But it's also kind of troubling and often is used by uh, people on different sides of a couple of different arguments, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But the verse right before it says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
And though that is the end of the ideas in chapters 8, 9, and 10, it does still inform what's happening in chapter 11. We have the opportunity in our worship together, in our community, when we're, we're talking with one another, and as we leave this place, to be imitators of Christ, to honor him and one another in how we treat one another. So Paul's going to be talking about specific instances and specific questions that they have, but ultimately chapter 11 is pretty straightforwardly Christians act like Christians towards one another. I heard many, many years ago, not heard, I read many years ago, the acid test of faith is how you treat one another. That's the only way anyone sees our faith is how we interact with one another. And especially in worship, I think this is really interesting how aggressive Paul writes to them about this because in chapter six, there were some people in the church who had visited temple prostitutes. Then they became followers of Jesus and they were continuing in that fashion. And Paul says, you should not do that anymore. And his language is a lot less aggressive than it is for Christians acting in disunity. In chapter 8, he talks about the pagan temples and the food and whether you could eat it or not, and he's, he is very gentle in saying, guard one another's conscience. Then in chapter 10, he says, but if you go through that entire festival, you're worshiping a demon. But his language is not as aggressive as it is here for Christians who are making each other feel less than in the middle of worship. And that doesn't mean that going to visit the temple prostitutes is not a big deal. It is. That's why he saw, Paul says, do you not know? Because they didn't know, and then he instructs them in that. It's not because worshiping in a pagan festival is not a big deal. It is. That's why he instructs them, don't do that. But in chapter 11, he gets really aggressive in language to remind them of the importance of unity. And he starts talking about head coverings and the order of creation and the reason that he does it is something was happening within the Corinthian church that was distracting people from their worship. And part of the issue is, and we, we know a little bit about this, but not a lot. In Corinth, how you wore your hair or your head, like if you wore something on your head, not how you wore your head, that makes no sense, displayed both your marital status and your interest in sexual activity. And so, if you stand up in front of people and culturally display that you're interested in hooking up while you're doing the call to worship, that's not great for the people worshiping. And our culture is not like that, and so we read things about head coverings and it can make us a little bit nervous. The key to this in terms of our worship is verse 13. Judge for yourselves. And I think we have. I think we understand that our culture is not distracted by those things, and we understand uh, people's... That's not a helpful analogy. We're just going to shove that over there. And I think we even know the importance of it with respect to one another, that we have an opportunity, though it might seem insignificant or even tiny, to encourage one another in our worship when we're near one another and not to distract them. 
when Paul talks about the creation order in 1 Corinthians 11, he's saying God made men and women differently. Though he's pointing out that man was created first, he's not doing that in, in order to say anything beyond men and women are different and they need to figure out how in a culture that doesn't honor that, which Corinth did not, how to lead worship in such a way that it's not distracting to you. There are certain clothes that if I wore them would distract you. Have any of you ever, ever seen the uh, account, the Instagram account, Pre- Preacher Sneakers? It's pretty fun. And it's pretty interesting because a lot of these preachers have really, really nice shoes. And these are actually pretty nice shoes. Um, But if the shoes that I'm wearing, you take a picture of them and Google them and you find out they're $2,400, that's going to throw you off a little bit in your worship, right? Or maybe you find out later and then you're going to be like, who in our church bought those shoes for Matt? Maybe they want to buy me some shoes. Or... We don't pay our pastor that much. Where did that come from? And that's a little bit of an, an interesting phenomenon, I think, in the 21st century. But what's happening is Paul is reminding them um, to judge for themselves what is the best way to do worship together. And the reason I say that is, look at verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. So Paul expected his advice that he wanted them to judge for themselves about, verse 13, to encourage them. He means this as an encouraging text, which makes it really interesting that this text is so used so often in other debates. But this is the point of what he's writing about. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This text is used in an argument that is going to sound simple, and it's not. Um, this argument is, is, is linked to, but different than um, how churches run things and how marriages work uh, in light of the teachings of the New Testament. The terms for it are just as bad as some of our political discussions because they're ridiculous. The term for whether women can lead in a church or not are called complementarian and egalitarian. And compliment is not like I'm giving you a compliment. It's like we have roles that fit one another. And egalitarian means we're all free and equal, right? So these terms are terrible because any Christian, I hope, believes that every man and woman is made equal in the sight of God. And that in marriage we have complementary roles, which the Bible doesn't explain nearly as much as a lot of people will explain them for you. But it is clear that in marriage men and women have complementary roles. So they're not great terms. And this passage is not written to address them nearly as much as some other passages that I'm not going to talk about because this is not a sermon on complementarian and egalitarian, but I want to bring on... It's not a sermon on those issues and churches deciding who can and can't do what. But I'm bringing it up because this text is uh, used in those arguments, in my opinion, inappropriately so. This text is about not distracting one another from worship. And the interesting thing about it is it would sound like a text that would limit or control that, but everyone agrees, and by everyone I'm thinking of all the study Bibles that I have and three particular commentaries, Gordon Fee, Anthony Thistleton's, and Feem Perkins, some of the best 
theologians on Corinthians, all agree that women in Corinth prayed and prophesied out loud. And prophecy probably is very, very similar to what we mean by preach, but Paul used that word specifically. It's probably a slightly narrower term that means to speak gospel truth to the community. At this church, Covenant Presbyterian Church, all of our offices are open to men and to women. And the reason is not because we can't find any men to do anything. I appreciate those little chuckles. A number of years ago, I preached on this issue, um, and I've, I have a lot of history with it myself, as does the barn. And I said something that I heard a lot, especially late high school and college, which was, if you let women lead, men won't lead. And then I said, if that's the problem, and the room just started laughing so quickly because they were listening to me, which was so honoring. And they saw the logical problem of that argument. The reason that all of our offices are open is not because we can't find men to do it, but because we see in the text that women were publicly praying and prophesying in Corinth. That's not the only reason, but that's one of the textual reasons that this is an egalitarian church with respect to church leadership. Our worship is not contentious, nor is it to be divisive. And this is the text that Jeff read to you earlier. Paul's saying, obviously, some divisions have grown. Um, They were a little bit circumstantial. A lot of times we can talk about divisions in church as though, like we chose, oh, you know it'd be really fun, is if I start judging people for this thing that I have and they don't have and seeing them as less than. Paul gives a little bit of language a little bit of writing um, to the fact that this grew for circumstantial reasons that he could understand. As best we understand it, we weren't there, we don't have video proof, the room that they worshiped in Corinth, there were two rooms, and one could hold about 30 people, and one could hold about eight or nine. And what happened over time was during the Lord's Supper, and perhaps for the entire worship service, the 30 people worshiped together and they received a meager amount of bread and wine. And the eight or nine people happened to be the really well off from the Corinthian church and they started bringing larger and larger feasts and more and more wine and just turning it into an afternoon together. And the people that couldn't afford to do that were made to feel less than and that was a huge problem. I don't see this in the church for a variety of reasons. I don't see people treating others as though they're less than for their socioeconomic differences. I think this is something that the church has learned its lesson on for the most part, though it was not long ago that we used to sit not at this church, but the the nicest pews were sold to the largest givers to the church, like not sold and taken home, like that's where you sit. But we have not done that, and I think... In part, though our culture is very imperfect, our culture expects religions and nonprofits to do their best uh, to not separate for whatever reasons. In a metaphorical sense, there are a ton of opportunities for us to do the same thing that the Corinthian church did or to learn from Paul. To not divide over all these things we could divide over. When I was uh, finishing college, 
the discussion around what we should and should not sing on Sundays was really rough. I'm really thankful I was not a pastor during that time. What Bible we use, we could divide over, right? This is the uh, English Standard Version, and I'll tell you why I like it. I like it for the Greek and the Hebrew. I'll tell you what I don't like about it. I don't like how it divides the verses sometimes. You know, those headings are not in, your, in the text of the Bible. Those are things that the translators put in to help guide us. And sometimes the ESV, especially with some of the issues we've been talking about this morning, is very frustrating. Well, maybe we shouldn't divide. We should just have every version here. Gosh, that would be so stressful. If you like raise your head and you're like, my version says this, and I have like 10 versions, and I'm like, that's the NRSV, and they did that because of their tendencies with this. That's the New American Standard. That's the most wooden. But Christians divide over these things. It must be this. It can't be that. And we have to have, we have to make decisions about these things. We have to choose songs to sing and songs not to sing. We choose the version of the scripture that we're going to use predominantly on Sunday morning. Sometimes uh, preachers ask if they can use a slightly different version. I say that's okay. Liturgy. Liturgy means literally the work that we do on Sunday morning. So there's no such thing as a non-liturgical church. Every church practices something. And all of you have opinions on our liturgy, and I do as well, and it is not something we divide over, and that takes work to accept what's happening, to ask questions about it, to even read and study. A number of years ago, a person came to me upset that we were confessing our sins in church, and the point that this person was making was about the flow of the liturgy and the opportunities in it, and uh, we just agreed to disagree. It was actually a very short, efficient meeting. <laughs> We're going to keep confessing our sins because it's a commandment and everything. Vision of the church is a very divisive thing, partly because this is a complicated enough church. It's old enough. We have multiple services. In the summer, we do things differently. We spend money in some ways and not in other ways. And this is something that we're challenged by because it's constantly changing. As people come and go from the church, how we do things changes. And because certain people are more in the know than others with respect to finance or um, future planning or things like that. One of the more interesting things that I learned about this church when I was interviewing was that the pastor in the 80s and 90s, uh, some of his family did not always attend with him. And I don't know the story, and I don't need to put a timeline on it. I have a great respect for Don. He and I are friends. That told me a lot about this church in a good way. Because the expectations sometimes can bleed over into others. And those are not things that we should divide over, and maybe there are things we need to examine. I was very impressed that this church could handle that then. And one of the things that is really tricky about divisiveness is our longing to be in the inner circle. How many of you read The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis? It's incredible. Incredible. It's an essay that he spoke about um, and turned into a book. Maybe I got some of that backwards. Maybe spoke about... Anyway. And I was looking through some of the quotes in it, and it turns out to be one of those books that I've highlighted more than I didn't highlight, so I couldn't come up with exactly the right kind of quote. We have got to personally watch out for our desire 
to be in the know on all the things all the time. It's one of the most dangerous and destructive things to an organization. For when personally we believe we can be and should be in the inner circle for everything. And I say that to say if there's anything that you want to talk about going on with the church, you're welcome to talk with any of our elders or with me at any time. We may not know exactly what you're talking about. We can go find someone else. But divisions in the church are partly natural, circumstantially natural, and we have to fight that they don't disrupt our worship and distract us from the importance of worshiping God in community. I was in college, and uh, a ministry that I was volunteering with, um, it seemed like after the meetings, a certain group of people would go get dinner afterwards. That's what it seemed like to me, and I went to a leader that I respected, and he was like, do you want to go with them? And I was like, yeah, but that's not, and he goes, hold on, you should ask if you can go. And I was so annoyed, I'm still kind of annoyed, because it was such good advice moving right past what I thought was my legitimate problem into my opportunity to engage with this community further if I wanted to. That's similar to the challenge that we have as members and regular attenders of this church. Our worship is not contentious nor divisive, especially around the Lord's table. Those words sound familiar in 1 Corinthians 11? I hope so. Matthew writes it this way, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is from Matthew 26. Mark writes it this way. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Luke gives even more ink on it, and the words are very, very similar. Do you know that those were all written after Paul? So Matthew's an eyewitness wrote down what he remembered Jesus saying. Mark sat under the teaching of Peter and eventually wrote it down. Luke interviews everybody. If you've read the book of Acts, you know he goes back and forth between the third person and the first person because he was either there or he wasn't there. We have found everything so far that he said historically about the Mediterranean to be wildly accurate. At least 12, maybe 15 years before any of them wrote this, Paul wrote these words that are strikingly similar. We're not sure if Jesus explained the Lord's Supper to him. There are a couple of people that actually think that when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Maybe Peter gave him these words. And the reason that I tell you is to encourage you again about the interconnectedness of the Bible, the veracity of the scriptures, the truthfulness of them. I was just meeting with a friend a number of months ago. He grew up in church and he said to me, it just seems so unlikely that these words, and I was like pull, I'm pulling my hair out, trying to figure out how to say, like, how, how long are you willing to talk with me about this? Because I can't prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead, but I can prove to you that these texts are really reliable. 
They were in conversation and concert with one another. They were passed along regularly and repeatedly in greater and greater measure as early as the first century. And sometimes when we see differences, we think that that means they're not trustworthy. And the small differences, in my opinion, actually teach us that they are trustworthy. How many of you grew up and verse 24 said, this is my body which is broken for you? Yeah. Do you know why that's not in the ESV now? Because we have found older versions of the text that are word for word the same except that word. Which is why the Bible now says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A tiny difference from another document reminds us of how faithfully these were copied and passed around and followed. And at that time, it was very dangerous to do so, but they believed it to be true. Most of them suffered for it. And the reason I'm spending a few minutes on this is I wonder if you believe that Jesus is for you. How could you trust him if you don't? And some of that trust flows out of your minds grappling with these men and women who proclaimed Jesus actually rose from the dead and followed him, most of them or many of them, to their death. Why, why would you obey any teaching of Scripture if it's not true and if you're not confident that he's for you? What's the point of this? To do religious things because we're bored? Or is it that we were made that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever and all of our desires are clarified and rightly under that? That, doesn't, that statement from the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism doesn't separate us from our desires. It clarifies and cleanses our desires and gives them back to us. But it begins with, why are you created? to worship God and to enjoy him forever. When your spouse or your kid is sick, do you remember who you called? For some of you, that was an immediate call. For some of you, it was later. Do you trust Jesus as much as that person? You called them because you know they're for you. What part of you wrestles with this? I was interested to learn as I was preparing for this that the part of me that wrestles to believe that Jesus is for me is actually the emotional part. And I wrestle with that because I'm an emotions first sort of a person. My head, my intellect, believes he's for me for all sorts of reasons, many of which I've shared. But my emotions lag. And so I return to the text and to worship and to prayer and to conversation with you people longing to trust him more. The Lord's table is such an important part of our life. It is when we literally ingest the fact that he's for us. It's literally when we receive the enlivening 
of the Spirit, not for the first time, but in a sustaining way. It's when we proclaim with our very mouth that he rose from the dead, which speaks peace to our heart. I have this whole metaphor for it, and I hate it. So instead of using the metaphor, I just want to tell you the Lord's table that we will celebrate next week together is for your strength, vibrancy, and peace as a follower of Christ to worship him and love the neighbors he's put into your life. And Paul talks about examining. And in the context of this, he's saying, are you a Christian or not? Sometimes Christians read this passage and they think, okay, communion at the barn is at about 11.30. At 11.29, I need to look back on my day and figure out what sins there are that I haven't repented of and I need to do that so that I'm in God's grace for the table. I'm exaggerating the point because, of course, Paul's expecting that one whose faith and allegiance is in Jesus will practice wise and good things like repenting of sins. But he's not giving a religious formula that makes you right with God. He's so frustrated with the Corinthians because at the Lord's table they were not acting like Christians in, in facilitating people um, separating and feeling less than. And then he says some of the more confusing Challenging things that I I think have a basic landing point, but I'm going to be honest with you. We do not know exactly what he means at the end of 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I believe what Paul is saying, and I try to get at this with different language when um, we receive the Lord's sacrament together the first of the month. If you're a Christian and you're not living like or acting like a Christian, it harms you and harms the community you're in. I don't think Paul's deliberately using metaphorical language, but because we don't know the circumstances that they wrote about and that they gave him an oral report about and he wrote them about, I believe he's making a broader point. When Christians live and act like they're not Christians, it harms them and it harms the community. Body, life, and spirit. And those who are not Christians, it can be harmful to participate in Christian activity because we don't understand the full spirituality of this, but hypocrisy in us is harmful to us and to our spirit and to our community, which is why I discourage people from receiving the Lord's Supper if they're not Christians. Our worship is not to be contentious nor divisive, especially around the Lord's table where we consider our salvation and where we wait for one another. In verse 33, it says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And he's giving a specific command to a specific church, but metaphorically, we have the opportunity to support one another in worship and in Christian friendship.
And this is very good news because how else will we be equipped to love those in our lives? If we trust him, then we love those he put in our lives regardless of how they treat us. I'm not saying set wisdom aside, boundaries, all that. We do not love in order to receive. We love because he first loved us. We do not honor our parents because we want to be in their will. We honor them because it's commanded by God and because he first loved us with wisdom. We do not love our children because we want them to succeed, even though we do. We do not love them so that they'll take care of us when we're older, though that would be nice. We love them because he first loved us, because he's for us. And there is nowhere else that we can receive that love and then offer it to the world, but through him who gave himself that we might live. Pray with me. God, we believe that it is indeed well with our soul because you, the good shepherd, have tended to our soul, giving us salvation and life, joy and peace, and a guide of how to do this life in light of you and your grace. Would you strengthen us to love you and one another. Jesus, would you teach us to imitate you in our homes, in the ways that we use our hands and our words and our time? Holy Spirit, would you guide us in our places of business, in our communities here, in our actual neighborhoods, to be imitators of you? Would you remind us to do so with the limits that we have that you do not have? Amen.